Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Uh, the book we're going to be talking about this episode is called The Paradox Twins by Joshua Chaplinsky. Uh, here's a little bit about Josh. And um, I want to point out that uh, we pulled this off of his website. This is the bio pulled from his website. Joshua Chaplinsky is the managing editor of LitReactor.com, which may or may not have come up in the past. Uh, on our podcast, uh, he is the author of Kanye West Reanimator and the story collection Whispers in the Ear of a Dreaming Ape. His short fiction has been published by Vice, Volume 1 Brooklyn, Thuglet, Severed Press, Perpetual Motion Machine Publishing, Clash Books, Pantheon Magazine, and Broken River Books. Um, Can I tell you how much that feels like a walk down memory lane? Uh, the list of... <laughs> Yes. publications absolutely yes. uh and like uh i don't know who's been listening for how long but um one of the probably the most booked centric interactions that we had with uh with josh personally was back when um lit reactor had a podcast of their own we had a little dust up a fun um like a, a for fun kind of scuffle with them over the what was it they did a there was an article that had like like a list of the best book related podcasts and their podcast was listed and we were making fun of it and we had kind of a back and forth um i didn't know it was supposed to be for fun why don't you oh. ever tell me these things <laughs> damn it that was oh that you were serious all right but <laughs> uh yeah um he he's one of the main people over at at Lit Reactor and and uh, it started up around the time that we started up, so we've always kind of had this kind of parallel existence, uh, but had not until now really had a good opportunity to read a novel of his. So excited to uh, to talk about it. And it's a it's an interesting one. I will tell you that I have read numerous articles at lit reactor and sadly and i hate to say this um this goes true for i almost never look at who they're by but uh, lit reactor mm, is yeah. a great place to get um information on the type of fiction that you might be into if you've listened to this podcast for a while like i feel like the parallel is is also in a very similar type of um mm-hmm. you know fiction they cover that we do like it's never a surprise to see an article on there about something we have on our list or something we reviewed recently. And uh, our anthology was their their book club uh, book for one month, so there's that too. There is that. All right, but we're not talking about any of those books. We are talking about this book, and uh, here's a synopsis. The Paradox Twins is a copyright-infringing biographical collage that exists on the Internet pieced together by an unknown auteur. I think that's French for author, by the way, just in case translating for you, Rob. Named for the famous thought experiment, it concerns estranged twin brothers who reunite at their father's funeral to discover they no longer look alike. Haunted by the past and possibly the future, they move into their father's house to settle his affairs only to reignite old rivalries and uncover long hidden secrets, most of which involve the young woman who lives next door. An epistolary work comprised of excerpts from various memoirs, novels, screenplay adaptations, and documents of public record, The Paradox Twins is an experimental sci-fi ghost story about the scariest, most unknowable quantity there is. Family. And I know you did a bio. 
and I, I maybe should have uh, I maybe should have interjected, but I do want to read um, the bio that's actually from the book um, because I think it's it's kind of important in the scope of this book. Joshua Chaplinsky is a pseudonym for the webmaster of unravelingtheparadox.com. He is a college dropout who self-identifies as an artist as opposed to an author that paints with the words of others. His name appears at the bottom of every page of this website, each one representing a signature on a canvas. This is his first large-scale work of collage. He currently rewrites history and pushes the boundaries of art from behind a computer screen on the American West Coast, hiding in plain sight of the corporate Hollywood elite. The reason I mention that is this book is presented to us, um, you know, kind of as it says. It says that it exists on the Internet. Obviously, we read uh, book copies. I read a digital copy and Rob read a paper copy. But the narrator and really the, the, the footnoter is probably a better way to say it, as well as the introduction, are actually written by Joshua. Here's something interesting that I didn't look at until just now. Unravelingtheparadox.com not only exists, but it contains, for anybody who's um, interested in getting a, a sneak peek at the book, it contains what would be uh, the Joshua Chaplinsky narrator's introduction to the book, explaining um, their role and what they did um, to create what you subsequently read in the rest of the book. So... When you go there, it lands on basically the, the introduction. Um, and then when you click on continue, uh, it takes you to another page that just basically has promotional information and a uh, like a quick video too. So pretty nice. Uh, it's very clean. And I think that's a pretty cool way of, of promoting, like kind of making good on the promise that the book starts out with. I didn't I didn't realize that until we were just reading about this now. I wonder if he's actively working on that because, and it's possible that I missed it. I went to it a few days ago when I finished the book and all I saw was the introduction. So I wonder if that's something actively that's being worked on prior. This book doesn't come out for another couple of great April 6th is the release date. So depending on when you're hearing this, um, that could be a couple of weeks from now. Um, so I, it feels like we're talking a lot about the the physical book more so than we normally do. And I think we're going to continue doing that um, for a moment because I think it's important to set before we actually get into the story to set up um, how this is. So there's an introduction where Joshua explains everything, um, you know, that, that we just kind of talked about, like how, why the whys and the hows of putting this together. The book is made up of many different sources, none of them, the author himself, with the exception of the introduction footnotes. And then there's a uh, like an author's note at the end. The bulk of the book is taken from three other memoir books. And they are Breakfast with the Monolith, The Paradox Twins, and The Third Twin. And uh, those are written by our three main characters, which we'll get into when we talk about the story. Uh, additionally, um, there is a ton of supporting material from newspaper articles to uh, letters to a variety of, of different um, sources that, that are... Oh, and I shouldn't forget a number of failed screenplay attempts at converting one of the aforementioned books into a movie. Yeah. So it has uh, a, a strong element of being an unconventional um, format for a book because the bulk of the book pulls together three different memoir perspectives of the same overall kind of uh, series of events. Um, and then like, you know, supported with, 
uh, interspersed in there, like Livia said, other documents and stuff. So um, right out the gate, it's weird but interesting. Um, but the reality of the story is like, you don't have to worry about this being like weirdly artistic or creative. I will say, since this is toward the beginning of the review, there is a cohesive story that you, you get a grip on. Um, it's not like you have to try and like, it's not one of those things where you have to decipher what's going on. Yeah. And yes. And it's not like it's, it's, essentially told from three different perspectives of people who were all involved. Um, so that's not terribly unusual in a book. It is unusual that you're reading from, you know, quote unquote, other source material. I guess I explained this source material I don't believe exists. Um, so really, um, Josh wrote three books, picked out his favorite parts and put them all together. I don't think that's how he did it. But essentially, you know, it's it's you're getting three points of view. Um, the first point of view is from uh, a character named Max Langley. He is one of the twins mentioned in the synopsis. Um, he is the more successful of the twins. He uh, struck out to write some some young adult sci-fi books that uh, did very, very well. And he's very well set. Um, but he returns home upon hearing of his father's death. Uh, for the first time, he was kind of estranged from his father. So for the first time in many years... And, uh, you know, he meets up with, uh, we'll, we'll call him Alan, I think. I'll leave this part to Rob, but uh, with Alan, his brother. Yeah, and one thing I want to call out before we move forward is that, like, there are definitely different literary voices. Um, and uh, Max Langley has, has absolutely a flair for the dramatic and the on the extreme, whereas uh, Alan and, um, you, know, the, uh, you know, the third twin book have, have a different uh, kind of more grounded voice. Um, so like the beginning of the book is actually kind of, uh, the max part is, a um, a look back at the, the birth of Max and Alan in a kind of weird, like if David Lynch were writing fiction or a memoir, I guess is, is kind of the style that this Max Langley character writes in. Um, but it's like a look back at the twins and, them being born and it really kind of sets up the character of the parents, Paul Langley um, being, you know, largely not super interested in being a father and the mother then carrying a burden of, um, you know, taking care of these kids that, you know, that the father seems to not really give a damn about. Um, not that this is an important thing to discuss in the opening of this book, but one of these twins is born with a, a it's called, I think it's got vestigial tail, right? Is that how you call it? Yeah. Is that how you say yeah, it? Vestigial, yeah, tail? vestigial tail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all I can recommend is you may think like, wow, that's kind of interesting. Do not Google pictures of this. It is probably <laughs> one of the most bizarre things. Oh no. You can see. Yeah. It's, it's just weird, but yes. So, so, yes, the introduction um, is is done through Be Breakfast with the Monolith, which is uh, Max's book. And then we kind of move forward, as I said, you know, whatever, 40 years, roughly, I think, maybe they're about 40, right? Late 30s. Um, and that's where we're introduced, uh, you know, to Alan and, and his book, The Paradox Twins, where he talks about uh, the, the uncomfortable relationship that the two of them had. Uh, it's mentioned the synopsis. They they no longer look so much alike, um, although um, they are, you know, at least at one point, 
uh, in the book mistaken for one another. Um, but yeah, so we're, we're introduced to this strained relationship um, between these two over the death of their father, uh, Max uh, wanting to be there um, causes some strain with uh, with Alan. Um, and it's not too much later that we find out that Max has ulterior motives. Now, I should mention, because um, I wanted to get the brothers out of the way first, that seemed to make more sense. There is uh, Millie Blackford, who is the girl next door, as Rob put in the notes, literally the girl next door. She's actually the one who discovered um, their father dead. He, uh, he he dies out on his front lawn. So she has reason to, um, you know, later in the book kind of approach, approach uh, Alan and Max. So, yeah, the death of the father brings um, the two brothers back together. Uh, and like we've kind of alluded to, Max is living kind of the extravagant book, uh, the author, like successful author life, whereas Alan is a teacher. He's taking care of their parents. He's not, you know, super healthy. He lives kind of solitary, boring life. And so when they come back together, um, it just... You know, they just rub each other the wrong way. And then uh, the the thing I like about the way that this is laid out is that um, there are the three. So the 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 third authorial voice uh, is Millie, the girl next door. So um, she since she discovered the father, obviously, she has the ability to kind of like firsthand reflect on that. Um, but. Uh, as the book goes along, you basically get to see three different perspectives of whatever's happening at the moment. And it just kind of rotates between them. And since it's um, excerpts from their books, basically when there's a chapter, it's usually one of theirs or it's like a piece of a script or something like that. But basically, so like now that they're together, um, the, the dust starts getting kicked up of not only the rivalry, but like remembering their childhood like reconciling with ghosts from their past as far as like addiction issues and other, you know, conflicts and stuff. Um, and so as the, as the story carries on, it moves from just the uncomfortableness of just reuniting after a while into um, family business from the past, but then also uncovering things that they didn't know about um, that change, uh, you know, kind of what's going on in the present day and some kind of weird supernatural ish stuff too yep so i was gonna say i was my next point was going to be so it sounds like a pretty run-of-the-mill family you know drama type book until you introduce the weird stuff um so i think it'll suffice to say that uh shortly after uh, everything we just told you uh alan starts to see a mysterious figure in his bedroom at night uh, yeah, so now we're going to probably start wondering like what the, the spoilers are. There's not much we can say about that, but there definitely is something that is a recurring element throughout the book um, that uh, seems kind of unexplainable. Um, as far as then just kind of moving forward with the characters, um, it's just a matter of like what they want and the decisions they make drive us forward. So Alan kind of wants just things to go back to normal. Um, but he's also worried that his philandering brother might um, have some ulterior motives with this uh, girl next door, Millie. Millie 
uh, really likes to write and sees an opportunity with a very famous author that is suddenly back in her life. And Max sees an opportunity to, uh, to, to, to kind of move forward his writing career in a way he wasn't thinking about before. So there are definitely some motives that push the story forward. Um, and, and I'm wondering, I will say that, so this is something that sometimes we talk about and sometimes we don't. Um, but the book's called The Paradox Twins. And in the, in, in the synopsis, it mentions that um, the book is named after a famous thought experiment. So I didn't know if you wanted to talk anything about that. But what I will say is um, it's not a just random cool sounding title. It actually pays off and has something to do with, with the story. Yeah. So the, in my understanding, I did very little research into this, but um, it's the, the thought that um, if you took uh, an astronaut, if you took twins and one of them was an astronaut and you sent them far enough away because time moves slower in space than it does here on this planet, that when they'd return, they'd theoretically be younger than their identical twin who was here the entire time. Does that sound like pretty much? Yeah. The idea is that they're traveling, you know, at a, at a greater speed than the person staying Mm -hmm. on the planet is traveling. And so the age time affects them differently that it, the time, you know, like doesn't slow down, but space time warps or whatever. Um, and uh, that that touches on the fact that they discover they no longer look alike because they did go in two very different directions. Max, um, you know, becoming a famous author, Alan teaching um, uh, science at a at a local, uh, I guess, high school. I don't know if I was at a high school. I think it was a high school. Yeah, I think it's a high school. Yeah. So, um, the, you know, the, the two twins go on to completely tr- different trajectories and they're very, very different people. Um, in the course of this story and the way, you know, that relates is, uh, interestingly enough, I think one of the things that he did very well in this book was you were talking about motivations. It's really a triangle between these three people that's really well balanced, which a lot of times, um, stories deal with relationships between two people. And I think that, um, even in this, the way this story is very oddly put together, um, he does a really good job of keeping it pretty well balanced between the three of them. Absolutely agree. And I would say that um, uh, the, uh, the development of those three characters is, is done really well. Um, and it, and it, especially since there's three different like narrative voices, um, I think that helped kind of flesh out the characters because instead of, a narrator telling you what a character is doing or how they're acting. You're getting like every word from their thing is developing them as a character. So I thought that was, that seemed pretty effective as a way to develop characters. Um, and then otherwise this is actually a pretty slim book as far as characters go in general, outside of the, the main three that we spend most of our time with, you've got the Langley parents, Paul, who is the one that dies at the beginning, uh, discovered by Millie. Uh, their mother's name is Florence. She's in like a, like a care facility. So doesn't come up much in the book, but like obviously factors in. Um, and then, yeah, the neighbor across the street, Millie's mom pops up once or twice, you know, um, to a small, you know, to a small degree. And then you got your narrator who really, like Livia said, he shows up at the, the beginning, the end, and then the footnotes for the most part. Um, so like the majority of the time that we spend is with Max and Alan and Millie. 
Yeah, and a third, third, fourth character, I guess I would put in there um, as a main character is kind of media, right? So we get the look, as Rob mentioned, um, through three distinct voices in these three different books. But then comically, in a lot of ways, we get a look at the failed um, scripts for the movie, you know, which to me appears to be kind right, of a commentary right. on, you know, at the beginning, Josh talks about, you know, how there's three sides to every story. Um, but this this kind of goes out beyond that. So you have the three first person accounts of what happened. And then you have <laughs> these other weird interpretations, um, which I thought was a really nice touch and, and, and a great way to incorporate um, entertainment media. I guess, and I'll, you know, I'll lump books in there and, and movies slash TV shows. And, and it does it, uh, it does it in a way that continues to propel the story forward and really doesn't t- a lot of times when you read supplemental material inside a story, it, it, it can take you out of the story. But I think this was done in a way that it just, it flowed really smoothly. And, and, um, the scripts, I don't want to say my first thought would say broke up the monotony. I don't didn't feel this book was monotonous, but it really kind of changes the view as you go into reading a screenplay versus these excerpts from books. And it 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 did a nice job of pushing the story forward. And like a really a nice shot sometimes at um the because like this is a book about writers, you know, writers and scientists for the most part, like the three main characters are all writers either whether they begin the story that way or not is 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 you know one thing um but then the scripts <laughs> it like the scripts are just I'm, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna spoil anything but um the ambulance ride part of that one script livius yeah just so um ridiculous and it's cool because you get to see the 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 original um experience from the the three people who were involved so you get to see the contrast um the other part would be the dna sample (laughs) was like just so there's there's situations where the script is just it's obviously just reaching for um like a more sensational take on something so yeah that was that was a cool way to to contrast um life versus media for sure yeah and i i don't know that there's anything else we can really say about the story. Um, you know, I, I think it concludes well. Um, as a matter of fact, there's something I really like about the ending that I can't, that I can't say cause it's super spoilery. So I'll mention it to Rob after, after we're done with this, I thought, but I, I was, I was very happy, um, with the ending and I'll be honest, I spent a lot of time in this, in this book, not knowing where it was going, which is, uh, refreshing because there are times where you can pretty much predict where where you know the climax is going to occur and what the outcome is going to be but he he wrote this book in a way that i really had no idea most of the time where we were going to end up and that was that was a pleasant uh that was a pleasant surprise yeah but like i i think that the way that it's structured it it really just supports like a pleasant experience of reading throughout while you're figuring out what, um, what's going on and how it all ties together. And then there's just, uh, one thing I have to call out because, um, we, we we're taking this story very seriously is that, you know, and I just, I talked about the, um, the screenplay stuff that was funny, but like there are really amusing and entertaining things that happen in the story. So, um, at one part, Millie's talking about her experience being in a creative writing class, like in college, 
And not only is it entertaining when she's talking about it and probably mirrors, you know, anybody who's taken like a low level creative writing um, uh, class, you know, their experience. Uh, he does a great job of, of bringing that up later on too, in just really satisfying ways. Um, so like there's the whole idea of like Chekhov's gun and, and uh, if you introduce a gun, at this point, you know, you have to pay it off by you using it, like, at a different point, that kind of thing. And there's, like, Chekhov's, like, porn comic writer in this. <laughs> there's just some fun stuff that, like, um, he introduces an entertaining thing. And it would have been enough just to say the thing. But then he, he incorporates it also later on, which I think is very, very, very cool. Um, while we're talking about specific um, parts of the book that I found entertaining, I couldn't figure out if if this was done in mockery but um there's a line and this this is uh, credited to albert allen langley um, from the paradox twins i've been reading a lot of science-based poetry these days and i thought my god that's magnificent because it sounds so fucking horrible and then i thought is this really a thing like was this was this done? Is it because like, like when you look at the book and, and and I guess anybody can have a perspective, right? But, but let's face it, if we had to pick one person that was the the protagonist in this, it's probably Alan, right? right Max that would is make sense, a little yeah. bit of a douchebag. Billy's uh, although featured prominently, more of a supporting character. Um, science based poetry. Can you think of anything that sounds worse than that? Well, we know how much you dislike science and poetry. <laughs> Yeah. So. so you would think that would be the worst thing I read in this book, right? You would be wrong. There is a paragraph, maybe two paragraphs, that talks about how great the band Rush is. And I was equally oh, wow. perplexed because, again, I couldn't figure out, like, Alan now sounds like someone I don't really want to hang out with based on these, based simply on these two things. And I couldn't figure out if Josh was mocking Alan this like stereotyping him into some weird like science guys are in a science-based poetry and rush um or or if you know he was he was writing about his own personal heroes so i don't know i don't know i'm probably not going to do any research into finding out but uh that did that did make my my uh my like of alan um deplete somewhat <laughs> that could have been the goal that could have been what he wanted success <laughs> um anything anything else you can think of off the top of your head that uh we should talk about like we definitely can't spoil any, anything else no i agree i will say that um i really liked and i i don't remember if it's actually credited as an author's note but um it, because of the structure of this book and the way it's it's put together um it's my probably my favorite author's note I've read. Yeah, uh, well, and honestly, that's um, that's something that I I thought about and hadn't mentioned yet. But like, he even does a good job of creating his own character. Like, he's definitely like a rebel with like really out there ideas of what what art is as far as like the written word, and it comes through great. Like with that opening thing, but also with um all the all the stuff that happens at the end. I I'll fully agree with you. All right. Why don't I uh why don't I go first with wrap ups? How's that sound? Av edit. All right. Um 
wasn't sure what to expect from this one. Um, you know, probably a third of the way through still wasn't sure what to expect with it because of the structure um, of how it's put together. But uh, Chaplinsky gives us an entertaining book in a um, very entertaining and to me, totally unique format. Do I know if this has been done? We've seen things kind of like this, but basically a book made up of other people's uh, fictional people's books um, is not something I, I think I've seen. And uh, I will say that for that structure alone, this book is something you should probably read. That being said, there is a, a definite family drama at the at the center of it that's uh, realistic. And uh, uh, it's not, you know, it's not going to tug at your heartstrings, at least I don't think it will. But it's definitely something that you become engaged in and want to see to its uh, to its conclusion. Um, the characters are engaging enough. Um, it's kind of nice to see them in their own words um, tell their stories. Um, and then there's a little bit of supernatural stuff thrown in there, too. So uh, overall, I enjoyed this book. Uh, my favorite uh, thing about it is uh, is really the conclusion. Um, I think it wrapped up uh, very nicely. I also gave it uh, higher points in plot and personal score. Um, I, overall, my rating uh, averaged out to a 7.75 out of 10. All right. Uh, I'm doing the Josh Mallerman thing right now of I have the book in my hand while I'm talking about it. Like, I know we talked to him in an interview one time and he said every time he does an interview, he's holding the book while he talks about it. So I just happened to be flipping around in the book while Olivia was talking. Um, I want to start out by saying amazing cover. Um, uh, the It's a it's a pink kind of hue. And it says the Paradox Twins in a, in a very modern-looking font. And it's got a space a man in a space suit. And it's just it's, it's got a great design to it. And um, I feel like we fail people often by not talking about their great covers. So starting out there. I think this checked like a lot of boxes of, of what makes a good book. Um, I was worried about this isn't... I don't know if I would call this an indie book. But um, it's not a book on, a, on one of the big five publishers. It's on Clash is the is the name of the publisher and when i when i get a book that has an unconventional format that is not in a big five my first concern is is this book going to be trying too hard and absolutely not like i don't think that anything that was done in the story sacrificed or uh, in the in the format sacrificed anything from the story and it actually managed to probably enhance it in ways which was like it just so that immediately overcame one of my big concerns was is the format going to outshadow outshine the actual story which would be not good but that's not the case so rest assured um if you're worried about unconventional formats for in my opinion no negative impact on on the ability for the the author to tell a good story um, it's also a pretty quick read. It comes in at about just over 250 pages, and it's a breeze. Um, I think the format has something to do with that. But, for example, I had about two-thirds of the book left to read, and I sat down last night to read it, and I was like, oh, I'm going to get through another third of the book, and then I'll just wrap it up tomorrow. I ended up just reading the whole the whole rest of the book. I just breezed through it. So it's it's a light, easy read, but the characters are just so great. It's probably my favorite thing about the book is is the characters, how well they're developed, and just like the fun interplay between them. Um, and it manages to be entertaining with like the lighter hearted stuff that we mentioned before, but also like, you know, poignant in telling the story, like a realistic story of family reuniting over, you know, 
having not seen each other for like a decade or whatever it happened to be. So, yeah, I mean, he just did a great job of taking um, three perspectives and sewing them together into what I thought was a very entertaining story um, told in a, in a unique format. The narrative is something that I did um, probably give it the lowest score on. And where I'm coming from with that is that it does take a little while to um, get in the groove of what's going on, and especially introducing the story from Max's perspective, which is the much more out there David Lynch type um, artistic approach to, to writing. The footing doesn't become sure for a little while. Uh, but overall, I gave high marks to lots of this. The conclusion was great. Characters are probably my favorite part. I like the tone of it. It just has a really um, unique and fun, entertaining feel to it. Um, so overall, all of my scores averaged out to 8 out of 10. And our overall score for the podcast is 7.875 out of 10. Great job, Josh. Now, now, now uh, in my spare time, I'm probably going to be going back in time to his short story collection for sure, Whispers in the Ear of a Dreaming Ape. Not uh, not going to do Kanye West reanimator? Well, books are just harder to, to squeeze in, but you can just read a short story here That's, and there. That is very true. Yeah. That is very, very true. And just think, when we started this podcast, I don't think either one of us was fond of short stories. Uh, yeah, I think we spoke strongly against them. <laughs> yes, we did. So listen, you never know. Check in with me in uh, in a few years. Maybe I'll be in a science-based poetry. That, well, that would be, that'll be the day. <laughs> be the day. And just a reminder, since this is dropping a little bit early, the publication date on this is April 6th. So um, we know we we have just other stuff that we have scheduling things going on with. So we had to drop this earlier than we wanted to, but April 6th will be the release date for this book. Yep. Available for pre-order on Amazon right now. So, um, hey, have you uh, have you watched Cherry yet? Uh, <laughs> I'm torn between pretending you don't already know the answer to that. Yeah, I know. I know. I, was, I asked it in a way it sounded like I might because really I just wanted to shame you at your inability to watch this movie in the in the course of the last <sighs> I know six days that it's been out now. Um, if you guys haven't already, or if you didn't hear the last episode, Cherry by Nico Walker, the movie version is available on Apple TV. Apple Plus is that what it's called? Apple Plus. Apple TV Plus. Yeah. Yes, Apple TV Plus. Um, I think if you have read Nico Walker's Cherry, you will enjoy it. And I think if you haven't, you will also enjoy it. Um, I'm just curious to see if Rob enjoys it. So we'll check back in again on the next episode and see if Rob got around <laughs> to watching Cherry. Yeah, I think that's one where uh, if, I, if I'm if i worried, I'm going to be like sobbing or crying or just real uncomfortable. Like I have to like, you know, dip a toe or I have to set myself up to be in a certain mood to watch it. So that's probably um, the real reason I have had a crazy busy week and a lot of unexpected things pop up. So there, there is that, but I think more than anything, I'm just being a little bit timid about it. And I'm picturing you curled up on your, on your couch with a blanket and like a big, uh, a big um, container of like Haagen-Dazs ice cream, like <laughs> getting ready to, to watch. Just ugly crying. Yeah. I, uh, but yeah, so I, I don't know. But I don't know if you're going to ugly cry, but it's it's certainly a possibility. Um, hey, I'm going to ask. You're a um, 
hell, I can't think of his name. That director, Snyder, right? What's his name? The 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 Zack Snyder. Zack Snyder. You're a fan, right? No. Oh, I thought you were a fan. Never mind. Um, I was curious because there's apparently a four-hour version of the Justice League movie. Now, I didn't see the shorter version of the Justice League movie, but I was like, yeah, people on the internet are really talking about this is a big deal. Maybe I should check this out. And then I saw it clocked in at four fucking hours. And I thought, yeah, "Yeah, I'm totally down for watching like a 13-hour series, but a four-hour movie. That seems a little extreme to me. So I, I was I was wondering, I thought maybe you would have uh, would have undertaken that. I, no, uh, no. And um, I'll tell you, like, so Snyder in general, uh, probably the stuff that I've I've um, liked, the, like the movie 300 he did. And I, I enjoyed that. I probably wouldn't go back and watch it. But in the, you know, at the time when it was out. I watched that. I saw it in a theater. I thought it was good or whatever. But um, he just does this weird stuff with um, these comic book movies where he just makes them like really dark, like, you know, um, thematically, but also like visually, (laughs) like everything is really like darkened. Um, And he uses lots of slow motion and it's just uh... so I did watch the Justice League movie, the original cut which is criticized because like it changed directors from Zack Snyder to Joss Whedon and Joss Whedon changed a bunch of stuff. Um, and I thought that was garbage, but, um, I, 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 I don't think that I, I can't. So he did that, uh, Batman versus Superman movie too. And I'm, I think, and I made the mistake of watching that and 30 minutes into it, I, I like, I realized I had stopped paying attention. I didn't even like actively stop paying attention. I caught myself like probably 10 minutes after I had my, my mind just wandered off. So I have no hope that this, that this movie is going to be anything that keeps my attention. I, um, so I'm, I'm looking at the, what appears to be a short list of movies he's done, um, of which like five of them are superhero movies. Um, I did like 300. I also I saw that in the theater when it came out. Um, I was really excited about Batman versus Superman. And this is like some comic dork stuff. But when I was a kid, um, The Dark Knight Returns, the graphic novel came out by mm. Frank Miller, um, which featured a um, a phenomenal story overall, but a, a clash between um, Batman and Superman. And then like the reviews started coming out and I was like, oh, maybe I don't need to see this movie and I felt Justice League was the same way. Everything I heard about it was uh, was negative. So uh, I, I kind of skipped. I'm not a big superhero movie guy um, at all. And people start talking about like Avengers Endgame. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know anything about it. Like, I saw like the first two Avengers movies. They were mm-hmm. okay. You know, but I didn't really follow um, too close. It, it gets to the point where you're like, wait, people are telling me I've got to see 18 other superhero movies before I can watch that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just not. I, I just I can't commit. To that yep. um so yeah i'm kind of the same way on this uh justice league but i like i said i was intrigued because all the buzz of this this uh you know snyder cut but god damn it man four hours jesus i, I can see why they changed directors because he was trying to make a four-hour movie and they were like yeah we can't have that yeah and and if the movie came out four years ago like there's nothing that and i'm i'm fully turned off by comic book movies at this point like i can't get into like the more that there might be a cinematic universe in general, the less interested I am. Like, um, if you're going to make a series, 
make a fucking TV show. Like uh, I'm not into the, and and it's it's weird to say because I love crossovers and I love you know big you know stories and stuff, but these cinematic universes are just it's not in the service of the story. It's in the service of making more money. Yeah, no, I agree. I did pull up his IMDb. I don't know why the Google thing was only listing like six movies. Um, what they don't mention in here is there that I didn't see on the Google page was they did that movie sucker punch, which I actually remember <laughs> kind of enjoying. Yeah. Um, uh, but more importantly, he directed the video for somebody to shove by soul asylum and a Lizzie Borden video in uh in 1989 there <laughs> so that's redemption i mean it might be the best things he's done i mean i don't know i His don't remember work. the video for love is a crime but i really liked lizzie <laughs> board and the band yeah um nope yeah not not into that um i will say that i'm rewatching westworld right now though so that's where my mind's at as far as uh, visual stuff is that going to another season? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that I, season. I lost track. It doesn't have a, a date, but on IMDb, the placeholder says 2021. So sometime this year, hopefully. So there are three seasons now, right? Yeah. That are actively out. Okay. I, I watched the first season, really liked it, and just really struggled to get into season two and gave up after, I don't know, like two episodes, I think. Yeah. It's. Uh... Still one of my faves, so that's uh, instead of watching Justified, I'm going through Westworld again. Um, oh, for, for anybody who didn't catch this, that Rob didn't send this article to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, there is perhaps a revival of Justified um, coming to who oh, I don't remember what the is, was it was it Fox FX yeah yeah. Um, so uh, I know Rob's a little excited to see some more Raylan Givens. So uh, we'll see how that goes. I, I actually think that would be really cool, and I'd very much be looking forward to it as well. But Rob sent <laughs> me that, and I was my first response was like, "How excited are you about this?" Well, and it's interesting too because um, the it's the same um, production team, you know, that like the same people as far as writers, producers, you know, that type of thing that made justified taking on uh, a different Elmore Leonard um, book that's set in Detroit with like a, you know, a specific like good guy and bad guy kind of thing. Um, So it's new stuff. It's not Raylan specific, but um, there, yeah, the rumor is that it could very easily incorporate characters from, from justified so they did such a like livius asked me if i was excited like he said and i was like it's the same people and they're doing elmore leonard again um so that's very promising they did such a good job with justified um i know i said this to you in a message but whenever a show comes back after years away i'm pretty sure that my reaction is about 50 50 you know positive negative so there have been some there have been some really good ones and there have been some some really really bad ones. Um, so hopefully this falls into that that previous category. But you're right. I mean, look, even even that last episode of the X or the last season of the X Files. Like even I think you were a little <laughs> lukewarm. Like once the excitement wore off, you know, episodically, it wasn't the best stuff. Yeah, and so I had a big discussion with a friend of the podcast, Brandon Teets, about this with um, the show Arrested Development because like if you want to talk about TV comedy, the first three seasons of that show are 
are essentially unassailably perfect. Um, so when they brought back for season four, there were some real missteps and um, it really soured a lot of the audience for, for new Arrested Development. But then they did a season five and um, it was, you know, the the same humor, but just different. It was trying to do something different. Um, and so most people don't really care for season four or five, but like I've watched them several times now and some of the best humor of the series exists in those later seasons it's just you have to get over the fact that this isn't trying to be seasons one through three this is like an evolution of the thing yeah that's fair i mean i guess intent intent matters but and then i I don't know we're at fault right we as consumers because when something returns you want the exact same thing that you had um, Gilmore Girls was was a failure at returning after like eight years or, or whatever. They tried mm-hmm. to do this weird four part thing that took place over the course of a year and it was not terribly well received. You know, again, after the initial excitement of seeing characters that you enjoyed. Um, yeah. So it's we tricky. shall see um, more and mm-hmm. more. I think we shall see as uh, studios continue to struggle to find things that are going to draw people um to television especially if you're like fx or someone on like a traditional television network and most of your business is going to hbo or netflix or whatever so uh it'll be interesting to see well i'll tell you what i'm interested to see or i was interested to see earlier today a package at my door uh that was very book shaped (laughs) and even on the outside of it it said something like you know this is a this this is a a book from Putnam or whatever release date, March 23rd. So it was the first time that there was like a sticker on the outside of the package, like very largely advertising that this is a pre-release book. That's kind of interesting. I open it up and what is in there? It's red widow by Alma Katsu, the book that's coming out in about five days. Pretty excited about that. Yeah, we had a lot of fun with um, the deep. And talking to Alma Katsu, we uh, so uh, we had a chance to interview her. We we read the hunger, we read the deep, we interviewed her, um, and so this is different because she's done kind of like historical supernatural stuff in those two books, and this one is a spy novel, drawing on her um, former life experience of working in intelligence. So. Um, that's that's something that dropped on the doorstep recently. I'm very excited about that. Really like Almakatsu and the people, the people in our sphere are saying good things about it. Um, we also got a different book sent to us, and I have to, I have to apologize first. I didn't acknowledge this earlier, but um, Zoya Stage sent us Getaway, her new book that's coming out in August, um, and she sent a copy personalized to the two of us, and I thought that was very very nice. Indeed, I agree. Can I tell you what I'm excited about? Of course. Our next two episodes. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So if you're not Uh. sitting down, this is a good time (laughs) to do it. We are going to review Stephen Hall's Maxwell's Demon, a book that we have been waiting umpteen years um, for. Now, not excited about reading it because I've already read it twice. Um, So I Before you move on, can can you repeat that? I've just read it twice. You've read the book twice already. That's just yes, it's, it's 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 a big deal to me to hear to hear 
uh, a, like a, a, a well-known non-rereader saying that he's already read a book twice that hasn't even been released yet. That's just a big deal. I want to I want to give you some credit for that. Thank you. Um, so I originally read uh, a um, an e arc to which the formatting did not lend itself well to what I'll call supplemental information in the book. So if anyone's read the raw shark texts, um, think sharks, right? Like how hard it would be to read, you know, sentences made up of sharks um, if it's in a digital format. As a matter of fact, I sent pictures to Rob. It was an absolute fucking mess. So now that we're coming up on the actual review and I have uh, not one but two paper copies, um, I thought it would be a good time to reread it and revisit it. And uh, as with the Ross Shark text, um, you know, I think there's a little something to be found the second time around in this one. So we're going to talk about that on our next episode. Shortly, shortly after that, as a matter of fact, about 15 hours after we record that review, we are going to record an interview with Stephen Hall. And I am uh, even more excited about that um, than I was about uh, reading Maxwell's Demon, if I'm being really honest. So uh, that's going to be your next two episodes from us. I don't know how closely they'll come together, but know that uh, by this time next week, we'll have been done with both of those. Very exciting. And um, for anybody who's a Stephen Hall fan, uh, he did say on social media that he was looking forward to talking sharks and demons with us so um to me um very selfishly that means that i can just interrogate him about both books um and, and i'm hoping he doesn't have a time limit on how long he can talk that's all i'm going to say about that all right that's going to wrap it up for this week we strongly encourage you to come back next week i'll give you a little bit of spoiler of my review if you have an order copy of maxwell's demon just go ahead and fucking do it um and that's all I'm going to say about it until next week when we talk about it. So uh, that's uh, that's it for this week. Um, hopefully we'll see you again next week. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.